Hey folks, Sean here with a just quick thing before the episode. Uh, since I moved, I didn't have a chance to properly set up my audio equipment, so I do not sound great in this episode. Uh, hope that that is okay and you're still able to enjoy the episode. Uh, and without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to DMs of Vancouver. The show where we talk to our awesome friends and amazing guests about how to help you become a better GM for your tabletop games or review games that we played recently from a GM and player perspective. I'm Jesse Boros and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Sean Haken and my pronouns are also he, him. We're your co-hosts for this podcast and we've got another great episode for you. This podcast is recorded and produced on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Swilatif Nations. In recognition of that, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. So, do you ever get stumped when things need to get sorted out during a game? Good news! Today we're talking about resolution mechanics in games like D&D and more freeform games like Fate. Today, we're joined by Mateus Alfred Omedo, um, and he's going to talk to us about these mechanics. Uh, oh. Mateus's pronouns are he, him. We hope you enjoy the show. Roll for initiative. Alrighty. Uh, back to recording episodes. And first one in a little while. Um, so, Mateus, so we're talking about resolution mechanics. Um I think best place to start is probably just explain resolution mechanics, what you think a good definition is and how they tend to be used in games. All right. So there's a, there's a lot of approaches for what a resolution mechanic can be. And I really think about it in terms of what is the resolution mechanics. And it basically measures how a conflict or opposition is resolved, how it is uh, ideally how um, um, how the system itself handle things that are not handled narratively, and it measures uh, success and failure in a particular in either black and white success failure or a particular gradient depending on the system itself. So the mechanic typically is dice related, but it doesn't have to be. It could be cards, could be role playing, it could be uh, the resolution mechanic, could be I agree with you, so let's go forward with that. It can be roll a dice, and there's a difficulty class to overcome. It can be uh, roll a dice and you have to succeed by a certain amount. And depending on where you land, that will, uh, that will, change, the, that will change the results. So in short, it resolve, a resolution mechanic is a mechanic that resolves conflict. Right. Um, I think most of our listeners are probably pretty familiar in D&D with like, okay, you need to make a you're, you're trying to see if there's anything hidden, so you make a perception check, or you're trying to uh, see if you successfully sneak past a guard, so you're going to make a stealth check, like that kind of thing. That's that's exactly it. Uh, and uh, depending on the system, uh, the system itself will focus on a particular resolution mechanic. Uh, it kind of, in a way, you, you sort of start think, looking at a system and going, okay, what does it actually resolve? What does it actually give you the tools to resolve? D&D is a great example of, it's primarily combat-centric. The resolution mechanics are all about attacks. Everything everything is revolving around attacks. The secondary stuff, the the perception checks, the stealth checks are there, but most things are, um, most of the system itself supports the combat. So it's not, the resolution mechanic has a range within a system itself. Will it have like its own sort of system for uh, for resolving combat? Will it have its own system for resolving non-combat situations? Is it all the same? I, I like the idea of thinking of combat as you're trying to resolve that I want that person dead and they want me dead. We need dice to resolve this. <laughs> it's a great it's a great way to resolve conflict. So would you say a resolution mechanic tends to be kind of like the core mechanic of a system? Kind of everything sort of resolves around it for the most part. Yeah, so there's there will be a the res uh, like D and D has a D twenty as a resolution mechanic. You roll a D twenty and everything hinges on that roll. You either succeed or fail. So that's the resolution, the sort of core resolution mechanic. And then you start adding 
not like little details to it to make it a little bit more interesting. Okay, we have combat. When you roll a d20, you're using your attack modifier against the armor class. And that is an explicit number that is unrelated to anything else. So you start the um, everything, a lot of the things that the classes do. You have your, at least with previous uh, D&D editions, uh, it was more so, less so now, where they've uh, added, uh, made, they made proficiency a sort of generic, um, generic number that is added to a bunch of different things. But you have your D20 and... Uh, you add the um, you add this number and uh, it yeah it, uh, it highlights the uh, when you look at it, it it's not the only thing that the system does but it's the, the thing that the system does the best right when the players are uh, you know making their way through a scene and it's taught like when do you as a GM decide like okay now I need them to roll a resolution mechanic because there are times where, you know, you can just back and forth uh, decide how things go, but I think that's something that I've seen online quite a bit is just newer GMs just asking, when do I ask for a perception check? When do I ask for a survival check if you're out in the wilderness? Like, what are some tips for newer GMs on, like, here is a good idea of when to call for a resolution mechanic? That is a great question because it's really uh, almost system dependent. Um, I tend to approach it as when there's an interesting outcome hinging on that role. If there's nothing interesting that hinges on that, the information is more, uh, for uh, in my per in my uh, perspective, it's more it's better served for the players to have information than to have no information. So the yeah the worst case scenario is uh, the the GM goes okay roll a perception check. You roll your, you fail. Great, you you notice nothing, and you move on, and nothing has changed. There was a there was a roll. The players know that there was a reason to roll for that perception check, but now there's nothing. Nothing has really resulted out of it. Was it a secret door? Was it a ambush? Was it a piece of treasure that I missed? Did I just miss something out on the game? And then you start getting into the sort of meta gaming problems. It's like, okay, well, I know that there's something, but my character doesn't, so does my character keep on looking? It's a problem. It's kind of a little problem, but to answer uh, Sean's question on what, like when to call it, it's it's really about, is there anything, uh, will the game move forward if this, and uh, with this role, will it actually add something interesting to the game? Something I'm curious about is because I've, like D&D &D has passive perception, which is the idea that like this is your perception role when you're just out and about, not like actively looking. Like, have you like I guess a have you encountered other games that have that? And b do you think it's useful, or is it just kind of one more thing a GM has to keep track of on top of everything else? <laughs> Uh, I'm a fan of having to do the less work, the more fun I have. Uh, it's a good question too. Uh, the passive, uh, the passive perception allows for things that are a very uh, someone it rewards a player that has uh, dedicated that has invested resources into having the uh, that particular thing be good. They want to notice things, so they'll notice things. But it takes away part of the game in a way. A lot of the, a lot of people love rolling dice. Like you come in, that's the, the game. You're playing the game when you're rolling dice. Even if it's, you rolled one, like you hear about sessions that are like, oh my God, we roll no dice. That is great. But really D&D is a, or a lot of RPGs are about rolling the dice. So if you're taking, you take that away, it allows for the narrative to continue, but does it, is it really still playing the game? There's just the, the game master has to keep track of, okay, do I have something that a particular character will notice in this particular case? someone that's really good at uh, managing those details, absolutely, they'll be able to pick up on that and go, okay, all right, John, your character, I know that he has a plus eight on perception, so great. Uh, but Jesse, you have a minus, minus three on perception, so you won't notice this. Um... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you did not notice that motorcycle, I gotta say. You <laughs> definitely did not notice it. No, not at all. <laughs> Uh, so that's a uh, that's a that's an interesting question. Like if uh, if there is something to notice, I'd rather just have the players act on it. 
if there is something interesting to notice. And the the interesting part about it, and this is a sort of a philosophy, a different approach to the game itself, is do you care more about the players, how they act about it, like how soon they respond to it, or do you care about their ability to have that information or not? And that's a different type of game that you would play. There's a sort of an exploration type, like if you think about an old school type of explorationary game where your survival is the reward. If you survive, if you notice the thing, if you remember to ask this, do I notice something? That is the reward. You survive, you actually have that information. And that's a great game to play. But we also get to the games where the heroes are heroes, like capital H heroes. They are action movie stars. They are going to survive regardless. And we want them to, we want them to win. We want them to beat the bad guys. That's a very different type of game. And that's an interesting sort of colors the response to when do I call for, uh, when would you call for that perception check? It's when it becomes relevant to the game. Yeah, and like, sorry, kind of going back to your early example of like, if people fail when it's just asked for out of nowhere and then they sit there and are like, oh, did I miss something in the room? Am I missing it? Like I have been at tables where for like, a half hour we try and figure it out figure justify some other way that we can check or, or whatever right <laughs> um and like that that's a very particular type of play style that thankfully i don't indulge in anymore no here's an important question about did you have fun while doing that no oh. <laughs> Not, so i'm sure some of my friends did but you know for me it just became like a, like okay we're sitting here and often it means that multiple roles have been failed now we're kind of you know, things get gloomy. Um, but I mean, like, honestly, it's for me, I'm in what I'd like to play, getting more and more away from that. Like, I don't like if I'm playing a character in a dungeon crawl, I will roll perception if I think there will be a trap or a monster, but I don't look for treasure. <laughs> like, I tend to play characters that don't care. <laughs> Have you guys run into the uh, issue where... <clears throat> the game master will punish you for not rolling a perception check. You didn't look for traps in the first room and one of you almost died or died. So every single square now, everyone's going, okay, check for traps. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I haven't been a player in too many games, but um, I think something that is relevant is one time that I ran a, uh, a session where they were exploring a a house that the locals thought was haunted, but it turns out it was just this woodworker who had gone uh, kind of nuts in his later years and had just filled his house with traps because he was a woodworker, so he could just do it all himself. And <laughs> one of the things that I did to like get the players into that kind of the mind space of like you don't know what's going to happen, trying to keep them on edge, is was every so often I'd, I'd ask for a... Uh, uh, like randomly throughout the the session, I just pepper in like roll a perception or um, uh, roll a dexterity save, and it was stuff like, oh, you you stepped on a uh, as you're walking up the stairs, you stepped on something and you heard a click, and you jumped out of the way, and it was nothing, or you know you you, you noticed this this one weird little detail, and it was just a piece of sawdust, or like just trying to like get them in the into the mind space of just like ah, i am on edge because we are constantly being asked to roll perception i don't know if this role is going to be important or not because the last time it was just you saw a bug on a tapestry oh but that's that's brilliant that's exactly using the mechanic the resolution mechanic to enhance the game you made it the tension it's the game master pulling up the dice and the rolling dice behind the screen and everyone's like wait what did you what was that for and that's a good question, actually, is that when it comes to resolution mechanics, I know that there are GMs who, uh, and I think this is a lot more common with older school GMs, because I think in the like first editions, it was the GM who rolled all the dice. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on the GM rolling resolution mechanics versus the players? Because I know that that's a, something that some people struggle with how to do it, because you know for a perception check, if the players fail, them knowing that they failed is a piece of information that maybe you don't want them to have. Yeah, so that's a, okay, so I'm gonna go on a tangent here, which is a good tangent because it's, um, think about it as, um, I, 
a while back, I was watching years ago, I started watching Arrow uh, on the CW. And Arrow was great. It was the first, uh, uh, the first of its many, many, many types of shows. And Arrow's entire plot hinges on people not telling the truth. It's all about lies. It's all about information that they don't tell each other. No one knows where Arrow is. So it's all about uh, Oliver Queen just sort of hiding who he is. Everything is about if they were if one person were to just tell the truth, the whole plot sort of goes away. Then I was watching The Flash, which is much more lighthearted, much more um, positive. And one of the characters, Cisco, I believe, he gets powers and immediately tells everyone else. And you're like, oh, if it was Arrow, it would have been like four episodes of them just him just hiding it and trying to like the tension of him not showing it to other people and people trying to find it out. And then they finally reveal it and there's a big drama. He immediately told people and they acted on it. And that was the most brilliant thing that I saw, that I saw which was they had the information. What do you do that, with that information? So back to kind of your, uh, your questions, like, does it matter? Like if, if your entire mystery hinges on people not knowing information, then that mystery, there's a, there's a type of enjoyment that you get out of it, but that's an interesting thing. Like if it's just, if it just hinges on them having that information or not, then that information needs to be way better, uh, delivered in a much better way than a role. If you're going to discover that the, your ally is in fact the vampire that you've been hunting all along and all you need is a role, maybe, uh, you can recurring reward that, but I would, I would question that. It's like, okay, that's, Maybe that's not the best mystery. Maybe the mystery is something else. It's much more interesting if they know that he's a vampire, but they can't do anything about it. Like, imagine this. You know that this is the vampire, but how the hell do you prove it? Like, how do you actually do something about it? And that's a cool idea. Like, that's, uh, I prefer the players. Uh, I don't, so to answer the question about if I, would I roll the things? I prefer not to. I prefer the players to enjoy it. And like, you want to have that information? Sure, you have that information. But can you do anything about it? Yeah, and that's, it's a good point because that's something that, I think we've come to this conclusion a couple of times now is that um, the kind of story that you want to tell doesn't really matter. Like if you want to run like a horror game or a mystery or a whodunit or just straight up, you know, combat and dungeon crawling, the way that you present things, because like that example of like, do the player, like when do the players find out that their ally who's been helping them is a vampire? Like, they find out right away. It's the question is, how do they prove it? Like he's actually the person behind everything. Like that's that way of like flipping it, the question on its head is, is not like, do they find out? It's like, Oh, they find out like very early on. It's just, yeah. How do they prove it? Cause that's something that I've seen with people talking about, like, how do you run a mystery game? Like how do you run a game where the players are, it's a group of four or five Sherlock Holmes trying to solve a mystery is like, that game doesn't work with dice rolling because, you know, <laughs> when you ask somebody like, and I've seen stuff about like, you know, the three clue rule and stuff like that, but these games where it's like, if you ask somebody to roll out of nowhere, like they're going to know something's up and that's where it all just starts to unravel. Uh, the resolution, let's go back to the resolution mechanic. That's actually brought up a cool point. A resolution mechanic, uh, playing Fate, uh, Fate has been had a few iterations renowned for those that don't know what Fate is. It's a narrative-based... Uh, it's really a good a good way to think about Fate is it's a, it's a very um, world-agnostic type of game that simulates movies, simulates like that sort of... Uh, that pacing of, uh, of a movie. It can simulate it really well. One of the best things that I discover that I could do in Fate is you could play a game where you're writing an essay like just you're in high school writing an essay and you can make writing an essay a fight. It's a conflict, a fight between you and the essay. And there is stress. You can take damage. You can uh, be hurt. You can have lasting consequences and you're trying to defeat the essay. The, the game allows for that. And it's a, the most bizarre thing that I discovered. It's like, oh, it allows, it, it's really that open-ended. You can make it exciting. Of course, who would play that different question, but it allows for something along those lines. But I could I could see that being like a really silly scene in an anime where it's like the student like literally fighting with a paper as he's trying to write an essay. Um, but it's it's an interesting point though that like fate um, has this 
somewhat simpler resolution mechanic, but it's used for everything. And because it's used for everything, it's because like there's games like D and D and more. There's games that are way more system heavy than D and D, and then you have all these games that are kind of down towards the like you almost don't have any dice, mm-hmm. like because you know like Fate is four dice and a couple of stats, and there's games like powered by the apocalypse where it is very simple but because there is only this kind of one resolution mechanic for everything it becomes a lot easier to think about how you build something that uses that resolution mechanic because it's something that i've run into with D is you know combat is all there you've got all the rules and everything that you need for combat but when it comes to like how do you do a social encounter where you know, the players are maybe spies and they're at an enemy embassy at a big gala. Like, how do you do that without just, well, let's just spend a bunch of time talking. And if you try to lie, then we'll roll some dice, maybe. But yeah, so that that's actually that uh, boils down to another cool co- uh, concept of the resolution mechanic. In D&D, you have combat, you have an attack, you have a, def- you have a defense stat, you have hit points. You have things that modify all that. There's a lot of, there's a robustness to fighting physically that is not ref, not reflected in, um, say, a social encounter where, okay, I tried to lie. Cool. You roll up. They caught you in the lie. Wait, that's it. That's that's how the system is presented. Where you have fate, which is the interesting thing is there is, um, uh, fate is very hackable. You can do modification of a bunch of like different things. And one of the most interesting things that they, uh, they present is you have skills, which is what can you do? What can your character do? I'm good at fighting. I'm good at shooting. I'm not so great at bluffing. I'm good at uh, writing. But you can change that. Instead of being skills, you can have, and this is a, something on Fate Accelerated, you can have something like uh, approaches. So it's not your skills. It's how you do things. And the approaches are things like forceful, uh, sneaky, clever. And it solves, it's when you roll for that, it's not about your ability, your, your character's abilities to do things, but how do they approach this? Like, how do they approach the situation? I approach the situation forcefully. So you're trying to bash down the door. It becomes that the game is more about, uh, if you think about an action hero, I don't care if uh, Vin Diesel's good at shooting. I know he's, I know he's going to be, pick up a gun and going to beat the bad guys, but it's really about, he's a fort, like almost any movie he's in, he's a forceful type of character that's going to bash through things and is going to crack heads. He's not going to use diplomacy, like 100% almost guarantee. He's not a character. Uh, he's never going to play a character that is his suaveness is not going to be the one. He's not going to say something witty and like solve, uh, defeat the bad guy. It's He's going to punch them. And that's the type of character he does. And you can modify that. that the resolution mechanic has suddenly changed. Like, what does it mean to roll the dice? And that's a cool thing about, um, that's what these games started uh, getting to me is, when you roll the dice, like what does it actually mean for you to roll the dice? The perception check is still the uh, the great example of you're perceiving something, but is it really relevant for you to notice something or is it more how do you respond to the situation? And now it changes the sort of the weight of the what the resolution mechanic measures. Is it just measuring your character's competence and then we, I'm giving you that information and then you decide how to respond to that? Or is it measuring how you respond to the situation itself? Is it more narrative focused? You fail the perception check. So you notice the orcs charging at you, but not soon enough. They're on you. What do you do? Have you heard of the the end of the world series of games from Fantasy Flight? I have not. Um, so basically it's it's a it's a neat system where I kind of wish they would put out just a single book with all of them, but it's it's a single system, like it's the same character sheet, but they've got four different source books we'll call them um, where each one deals with a different set of apocalypses so like there's a zombie apocalypse book and in the zombie apocalypse book it's like okay what if they were parasites what if they were you know george romero hell is full kind of zombies what if they were uh you know a weird goo thing and there's one for zombies for gods for aliens and for robots Um, And the thing that I think is really interesting about the system is that they basically have a a resolution mechanic that they've then uh, applied to three 
sections, I guess, of what a character is. So, like, you have a physical, mental, and social uh, sections on your character sheet. And one of the things that I like is that you track stress in each of those sections separately. So if you are, you know, uh, in the zombie apocalypse trying to uh, barter slash negotiate with somebody who's uh, got a lot of resources and you really need some, and you fail, like you'll take stress on your social track. Uh, or if you're trying to solve a, you know, figure out how to pick a lock or hack a computer system, if you fail, you take that stress on your mental track. And so it's this interesting thing where like you can have a character who's racked up a whole lot of stress, but because you haven't hit that final stress on any one of the three, you're still good to go. That's really cool. That's a... Uh that idea of adding that extra sort of measurement uh, tool to a game, it's an easy one. Like you can do it to D&D. You could add a mental health and, well, actually, let's not call it mental health, but uh, you can have it as a like a psychic uh, hit points or something. Instead of just your physical health, you could have your mental, I'm going to keep on calling it mental health. <laughs> but yeah, like that, that idea, because I've seen this, some other systems do something similar where, um, they just they'll, they'll just call it like stress and you take injuries and you, you like longer term repercussions or traumas where the idea that uh and traumas is uh, not the greatest way to phrase it uh for sure but the idea that you can have a a pool of hit points for social encounters and for like combat encounters and for like you really needed to pick this lock and you failed. So that's, you took some stress for that. Cause there's, I think the uh, Tales from the Loop, I think does something similar. Uh, and a couple of other systems I've looked at have this kind of idea where your your health is either an amorphous blob that in, includes your, like how your brain is doing after a stressful social encounter, or it's like, yeah, you were literally in the fight and you lost, you lost some blood, you lost some hit points there. Um, the idea of like actually being able to track that so that a resolution mechanic for, you know, a stressful situation when you're talking to people has the same impact as you went into combat with a dragon. That is a cool, uh, there's a, yeah, there's many systems with that. Uh, I like, uh, it depends, I guess it depends on the system itself. Like if you're focusing on the physical combat, the mental component of it might be tracked differently but um i like fate again i was having a, a recent fate game where i just combine all the stress tracks there's no uh, fate allows for the different stress tracks of uh physical stress mental stress if it becomes relevant you could have actually have wealth stress as well or something different it's a very maneuverable system i didn't want to keep track of that so i just combined it all so you could go into a fight punch a guy and then insult someone else and get the same result the insult hurt them physically, hurt them like emotionally, and then they stop fighting. And it's it's the fiction that changes, which is a cool idea. It's like, okay, you insulted the person who's no longer fighting. You've defeated them. You haven't physically beat them to a pulp, but you've gotten them in such a place where they're not going to fight you anymore. So is it success? Yeah, absolutely. That's And that's really neat because I know that there are – it's a problem that I've heard a lot of people talk about with combat-focused games like D&D is that – you know, I want to play a character who's not the best at fighting, but that's kind of what all characters turn into, regardless of how you start, is that eventually you got to get good at fighting because that's kind of what D&D is. And there's people who want to play like, yeah, I'm a cunning rogue who doesn't know one end of a dagger from the other, but he can insult you so bad you're going to leave. That's a cool thing uh, that D&D doesn't support explicitly. Beautiful. D&D, uh, it's... Uh... It's almost like D&D will support that in spite of the system itself. The system is robust in the, I'm punching you, you're punching me back. How do we solve this? Um, I have a friend that plays, a, he's playing a game, a pacifist game. Everyone agreed they're going to have no combat. Apparently they have a blast. They're finding uh, different ways to uh, use magic. One of them is uh, raising undead as a way to have like servants and creating a society of uh, basically free labor. <laughs> and it's a cool, uh, super cool idea of using the system itself in spite of what the system does best. But 
the everyone is, has to be, everyone has to sell on it. Having the one person's like, I'm going to be a pacifist and everyone else is there to punch. It's like, it doesn't work. Like, oh, I had uh, a game like that where one of my players wanted to play a low wisdom cleric and we mm. got through and like the idea was great, but we got through one or two sessions and she was like, oh, I can't do anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And like we, we figured out a way around it to justify them having higher wisdom without having higher wisdom. But it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, the game really penalizes you for trying to do something like playing someone who's specifically bad at their class. It's like choosing to play, I don't know, something like Yahtzee with D4s. And you're still <laughs> using the same rules, but you're using the wrong dice. It's like, you are, the game doesn't necessarily, you're playing the wrong game now. Like, it can be done and you could have, you could still score points, but it's going to be a very different game. Yeah. And like, it's one of those things where other systems will support something like that. You know, uh, like I, you could probably run something like that in a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Someone who is reliant on wisdom for their abilities, but is not good at it because of how the rest of the game works, right? Yeah, the Powered by the Apocalypse games are cool because they are, the game itself, this, the resolution mechanics for the system, it's the same throughout everything. And that's uh, that's actually beautiful. That's uh, I'm playing, uh, it's becoming one of my favorite systems right now. I'm running a Powered by the Apocalypse game and I'm loving it. It's a Dungeon World type of game. So it's basically D&D, but in Powered by the Apocalypse. And it's just brilliant. Uh, the neat thing is that the systems themselves, the different playbooks, create an entire different... Uh, almost a very different game to play because they'll focus on different things. Like what does it actually mean to succeed? Like when you succeed, like the things, the moves that you have available to you are going to mean something very different. And that's a cool, uh, that's a cool thing that with just the core mechanic of you roll 2d6 uh, and there is failure success with a cost and full success. There's always, there's so much like the flavor of the game, the fiction of the game changes so much just based on what you actually focus on. I, I think that the, to me, the biggest selling point of powered by the apocalypse is that there's a game where you can make your own supernatural. This is power, uh, which is the monster of the week. Mm -hmm. And there's a game where you can make your own WWE, which is the, <laughs> I'm, uh, worldwide wrestling and they're both powered by the apocalypse and that's just fantastic to me it's simple uh it's a simple uh it's, it's a simple solution i'm talking about uh, now that you're uh now that you're getting into uh powered by the apocalypse uh, so dungeon world has a super cool uh, move uh called the discern realities and it's the perception stand-in and it has one of the most brilliant solutions to do you spot something because uh, so the move is uh, so for those that don't uh, don't know, I'll give you a very brief description of it. You roll. Uh, you have to be doing something within the fiction to to trigger this. So like, okay, why are you trying to? Uh, what are you trying to discern? Like literally, you're trying to discern realities. You're investigating. You are rummaging through the drawers. You are looking for monsters and trying to analyze the situation. When you roll, it's gonna. Uh, if you fail, then something bad happens. You get experience. So if you roll six, uh, six or less, you get experience. I love that of the mechanics of uh, Powered by the Apocalypse. Failure leads to leveling up. If you succeed uh, between a seven and a, and a nine, so sort of the mixed success, you get to ask a question. And if you succeed from a 10 plus, you get to ask three questions. Not any questions, specific questions, very specific questions. And that in itself is designed in such a brilliant way because none of the questions are, what do I see? Nah, nah. Things like, what here is relevant to me? What here, uh, what here is valuable to me? What happened here recently? What here is not as it, uh, as it seems? Those are questions that are going to lead to a solution. It's going to move the plot forward. You ask this question. Of course, the answer could be, there's nothing here that is uh, not as it seems. Everything is, uh, everything is true. But hey, you've just learned that there's no lies here. Nothing is weird. And the game master has to answer truthfully. What here is about to happen? You're about, like a dragon's about to show up. There's about to be an ambush. Something's about to happen. You have to act on it. Those are questions that lead to action. And that's a cool, uh, I guess you, you asked at the beginning of the, of, uh, of the interview here, uh, when do you 
When does the game master uh, call for a perception check? Well, when it's going to be something relevant. And if someone is discerning reality, something, any of the answers that they get will lead to something else. And it's a super neat, uh, it's just built into the system that anything that all the answers you get are answers that are moving the game forward. Yeah, and so, so something I'm curious about because I started off um, playing D and D, and then got introduced to other systems. And like one of the other systems that I played that kind of blew my mind was Star Wars: Edge of the Empire, because it's a system where uh, the dice that you roll, because like there are systems where there's like success, mixed success, and like failure or total success. I completely blanked on what the first thing I said was. Um, but in Edge of the Empire, you're rolling these dice and there's three different symbols on the good dice and three different symbols on the bad dice. So it's possible to like technically succeed in what you're doing, but to have a really bad thing happen at the same time. Like those situations where, where like, it's like one of the examples is like, okay, yeah, you... Uh, like something like failing at your task, but a good result happening is like, yeah, you missed the, your, your, your shots missed the stormtroopers, but they spooked some creatures that were behind them and now they're stampeding and now you've got some extra cover or something like that. When it comes to games that have these kind of, that like gray area, like in between success and failure and sometimes even on the other side of like, you failed, but something good still happened, or you succeeded, but something bad still happened. Like those results that aren't just like black and white, you know, pass fail. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? And uh, like, do you have any uh, like good examples of how to do that? Because that was one of the things that took me the longest when I started playing those games is like, what does it mean when somebody gets a mixed success or when they, you know, they fail, but something good happens. Like, how do you put yourself into the mindset of being able to like come up with stuff when somebody rolls and they kind of succeeded or they kind of failed? That's a oh, that's beautiful because that's a hard that's a hard thing to get into the mindset of. Uh, I started playing D and D too. Uh, it's and it got into the it's you succeed or you fail. You succeed really well when you roll a twenty and you fail miserably and you look foolish if you roll a one. And that always bothered me. When you roll, when you fail, and suddenly you look clumsy, you are a 20th level fighter that just slipped and fell and dropped their sword. It's like, that seems sort of silly. And there could be a game that that is okay, um, but that's hard, right? That's a, um, that's sort of feels like you're making fun of the character for having poor luck. Um, if you think about an action movie, you never, like, uh, I remember watching um, Fast and the Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, whatever the uh, offshoot for, uh, uh, for that movie was, and no, both of the characters uh, basically have uh, Jason Stratham and um, The Rock sort of being badasses. None of them actually. I believe that there. I, I read an article about it, but that both of them in their um, in their contracts, they cannot look foolish. They cannot yeah. fall, and it's a funny thing. It's like they have to look badass all the time, and that's when you think about your characters. I don't think a person. I don't think anyone builds their character. Let me rephrase this. Most people, I think, when you come with a character, they're not thinking about how is my character going to be foolish. They're thinking my character is competent in some way. There is going to be some, yes, they're going to fumble a few times, but they are adventurers. They do this for a living. Dropping your sword is not a thing that you do uh, on a whim. It's like, oh, no, I tried to swing and it slipped off my hand and flew up. It's like, wait, that's that doesn't make any sense. So kind of I got into the mindset of thinking being a fan of the players, I got this from uh, Power by the Apocalypse by Dungeon World. Um, be a fan of the players. It's one of the principles that the GM is given. Be a fan of the players. Like, root for them. They are awesome. They are competent players. And something I got from Fate is the characters are uh, dramatic, proactive, and competent. That's a super interesting to remember. Like, they're competent people. They're not. They're not rookies. They're not people that are gonna like picked up a gun for the first time. Maybe that is part of the story, but when they pick up the gun, they know how to use it because that's the story that we're telling. So once I started thinking about it like that, it's like, it's not about, the characters are not failing 
the characters are not like they're not failing it's the uh, the obstacles uh, against them are the ones that are provide being so insurmountable that damn they got the guy knocked the sword out of your hand yes it was a critical failure but it puts you in such a bad like you uh, you uh, you open up yourself in such a way that the guy took advantage of it and now he's in a better position than before he knocked the sword out of your hand you are a 20th level fighter and this dude this first level goblin knocked the sword out of your hands what are you got to do about it that suddenly becomes so much more dramatic like the player like now now it's about this guy this opposition you didn't fail the situation is just that much harder than you thought yeah it's funny that you mentioned the the, the whole fire thing because something i've i've read about like the, the idea that 20th level fighter who's going to be attacking way more than anybody else has a much higher chance of getting a rolling a one which is to me a good argument for not having critical fumbles because <laughs> you don't want your like your character who's supposed to be like you said they're competent and especially at higher levels in D and D at least you're supposed to be like what was it like past 10th level you're not really a normal base level human dwarf half orc elf whatever like past 10th level like you you are renowned you are known throughout the land as the person who gets the stuff done and for you to have like a frankly embarrassingly high chance of dropping your sword if you roll a one just feels weird it is oh uh jesse you wanted to say something it, it's actually one of my main beefs with uh some critical fumble ones especially when people run like realistic quote-unquote realistic games but have things like you cut your own hand off when you roll a one. It's like, is that realistic though? You got to do a lot of work to narrate that into being at all realistic and not just kind of like weird slapstick, grim, dark violence. That's a realism is a word that I'm cautious about. I want to make sure Sorry. that when someone says that's not realistic and I go, well, I can prove to you that I can do that competently. Will that change your Would that change your mind? And that's that's not an argument that I like to get into because realism is a realism is dangerous, right? Like it's that, yeah. It's it's why I don't like to play game. Like my games are not realistic. No. We're we're already playing a fantasy yeah. game. You're casting spells. Where is the realism in that? Was yeah. that not, was the wording that you chose for your somatic compo- for your vocal components not correct enough? It's like, come on. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's just a thing I've noticed in like games that again are quote try, quote unquote try and be realistic, uh, but have those critical fail ones where sometimes they are downright comedic of like what the result of a fumble will be. So I think about uh, I think about that my my kind of how I've started switching my thinking is I start asking like what does it actually mean when you attack? What does it mean when you make that roll in terms of the fiction of the game? And some games present that a little bit better or another, but that idea, the D&D idea that you're standing for six seconds, you're standing next to another person and you do a single roll, a single blow against them and they do a single blow against you and for six seconds you do nothing else. It's weird. And once you start thinking about that, it's like, wait, you have to, there's some, uh, uh, there's going to be some things that you kind of accept within the game to like, okay, sure, there's other stuff going on, but like you have to start thinking like what is actually happening during that time? Is it just it's not necessarily just one single blow? Maybe you're doing multiple blows. Maybe you do twenty blows in that, those six seconds, but only one of them really counted. And the fiction is the important bit there. Yeah, because yeah, I'm just putting it in that like it made me think of like I took martial arts for a little while and we did uh, sparring. So like you know you put on whole bunch of pads mm-hmm. and you you know with boxing gloves and you get onto a mat and you fight somebody and thinking about how like the the teacher that i had was always stressing like you never throw one punch you never throw one kick it's always Mm -hmm. a combination because you're trying to set yourself up for that one hit and that definitely makes sense in terms of like thinking about you know sword fighting and archery and all this stuff like you know an archer isn't just sitting there and then just flank throws off one one arrow they're gonna be like trying to aim for that perfect moment and you know, sword fighters or somebody using a weapon is going to be, they're going to be attacking to try and find that moment where they, they think they can get past their, 
the guard of whoever it is that they're fighting. It's a, uh, it basically summarizes the, the exchange in a way that you are, you can parse it down to it's one single role for that exchange, but, and then you can potentially do damage, but it's more than that. And that's an interesting, uh, Love, let's go back to the perception check. It's not you noticing, it's how you notice, or it's how, uh, what, what is the relevant thing that you notice? It's uh, what does it actually mean to do that role? If uh, the fumble is you losing your sword, like why, what caused that? It's entirely possible that that, that can happen. Uh, I'm actually, I'm a sword fighting instructor. I do actual sword fighting. And I, uh, I joke with uh, some friends that uh, I stopped playing D&D for a little bit because I was a better, I was a higher level fighter than my first level fighter. It felt, it was the strangest thing where it's like, yeah, no, I can, I can fight better than this guy. This is weird. I got around that to just go, it's fantasy. It's fine. Fantasy is great. But it, uh, yeah, it's like when you're, when you just, when it means like, when you try to make it mean that one attack is single action that you do, that becomes a little bit, it means, it means that you have to imagine dead space everywhere else and so what is happening during the rest of the time and i could see that being useful um for people who are trying to run that you know scene at the opera or at the embassy where you need to negotiate or try and uh, you know get some information from somebody where you know because plenty of players and even myself like i'm not always super super comfortable having an extended conversation in character. Uh, there are plenty of people who will say like, yeah, my character goes here and does this, you know, contrasted with the people who are always in character and like talking in voices and whatnot. But the idea that, you know, you go up to the, the diplomat and you're going to have a conversation, but you roll and then based on the role, you just kind of narrate like, okay, yeah, you talk to them for a little while, you witty banter back and forth. And at the end, you, you succeeded cool you get the information that you need because you managed to charm them like it's it feels like sometimes it's part of the gm's job to put that narrative structure around the players when they are doing the resolution mechanics so that they understand okay you you failed because x y and z or you succeeded because you did this right and having that narrative structure so it's not just a yeah, we went to we went to the opera. I rolled a dice, and then we left. That's actually cool. Uh, you give a great example of a time to do a good role. Someone says, "Okay, I go talk to the guard. I uh, I want to try to convince them." Okay, cool. What do you say? Uh, maybe they give the most preposterous lie in the world. Maybe they just make up the word like a story that no one would believe. Okay, cool. Roll. You roll well. Perfect. They believe you. I'm just going to go with your character managed to deliver this in such a way that it was believable. And the difficulty class may not change. I typically prefer if the player does suggest something preposterous and they want to go with it, I go with it. I love just being surprised by the players. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, I just go, cool. Is it going to succeed? I don't know. This is a good time for a dice roll. And you've already established the fiction. You've just told me what you're trying to do. I'm not going to decide if your lie is good enough. I don't know. Maybe maybe your character is an amazing liar. Maybe they just had an off day. Maybe they're the best liar, the most renowned liar in the world, but just something that they said did not work. So the dice, that's a great time for the dice to come in. And not the, the game master asks for it when the fiction dictates it, as opposed to there's nothing, there's no input. They're walking down the, ro the road and, okay, roll a perception check. It's like, wait, we're walking down the road. Why are we rolling the perception check? Maybe there's a reason for that, but if it doesn't have any context, does it? How does it move this? How does it move the game forward? Not necessarily the story, because the game doesn't necessarily need to have a story. It could just be about exploration. But how is the game improving with that that idea? And I love that that idea of the opera. Like you're go, you're at the opera, you're talking, and okay, cool. This triggers a this triggers a good time to roll. Go ahead, roll, and let's determine the success now. I'm just thinking about the beginner's box for D&D &D, uh, for the fifth edition, where the very first encounter, like there's a little bit of story set up, like you were in this town and you were hired and the, the setup is like you're on a covered wagon heading to a town and then you're ambushed by goblins. And as the GM, like you're supposed, like the way that the book sets it up is to just 
ask the players for perception checks. And it feels like to me that this is one of those spots where D&D and, and lots of games sometimes don't do a great job of explaining the stuff that's not the core mechanic. But for like D&D to start off the beginner's box with a perception check and it is just ask the players for a perception check rather than like a little story blurb of like you're traveling through an area where you know that there have been ambushes in the past from from goblins or whatever. So you know that like, you know, you know that you need to be like keeping aware of your surroundings. Give me a perception check. Feels a lot better than just like, yeah, you're on a wagon, you're heading to this town, give me a perception check. Like just a little bit more because especially in the beginner's box where like you are trying to set up new DMs to run this game, getting them in the mindset of just like put a little bit of narrative around the resolution mechanics so that the players understand better what's going on. It's an interesting thing that uh, because of the passive perception and the passive insight, the other than uh, your attack bonus, those are the two best skills to invest in because those are going to come up all the time. There's always going to be a, something to perceive. There's always going to be someone to catch an ally. And those are basically, they just told you by having those passive numbers, though these are important. That's an interesting side note, uh, side effect of that. They've done that, but like, I think there's, I don't know if this is in the rule book. It's been a while since I looked, but I know there's an, always an ongoing conversation about what does passive perception and passive insight mean? When do they apply? And all of this stuff. I, I know my leaning is like, you know what, if we're, if we're using it, it always applies. Your passive perception role is always, you know, you, you're really good at perception. It's, it's 18. You notice most things. Will you notice it in time to let your give your friends the opportunity to also notice it before they're in trouble? Maybe not. But, like, that's that's kind of the problem I see with it all the time is, like, some people... Like, I've been in games where I have a very high passive perception. Like, my character's whole thing is they're perceptive. And I always have to roll anyway, even when it would be, like, a 10. Yeah, that's an interesting... That's That comes up to the Game Master knowing the tools. Like, okay, are they actually using that? Um, uh, something... Oh, I have so many thoughts. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about all this, about the resolution mechanics, is thinking about what it means is you have to talk to the players about it too. You can't decide this is what this means to me and go and like creating the pacifist character. You can't come up to a game and like, okay, cool. We're going to play D and D great. I have this amazing idea for a pacifist character. Here it is. Let's go. What if you're playing a game where it's literally just, you're going to go and uh, commit genocide against the orcs. That's like, what if uh, it's a dungeon crawl? What if it's a, what if it's a political game? Is you need to know you need to have this conversation with your uh, with your players. You need to have it with yourself too to find out like what does it actually mean? What is the game that we're trying to play, and what does it mean when you fail your like when you fail a role? Like, are you playing competent characters? Do you actually want to be goofy and sort of uh, fumble around? That's cool, uh, but yeah, like if you create a character specifically designed to notice things and you never notice things, what? What game are like? We are playing a different game than the game master provided. So that's an interesting thing too. That's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's one of those things too. Like why session zeros mm-hmm. or discussing the game beforehand are so important because um, sometimes even between campaigns, the same DM will change their style if they've you know they've watched a video or listened to something and they're like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, or sometimes even mid campaign. Um, but it's, it's important to, I think, especially when people are making characters, be like, okay, this is the type of game it is, like, you know, this is how I handle something like passive mm-hmm. perception. You know, this is how I handle critical hits. Uh, this is how I handle critical misses and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's good to go over because, like, you know, uh, for example, for critical hits, I, like, I started playing D&D of 4th Ed, so I use the 4e rules which is your damage dice is maxed and then you get to roll a second one and add it that's beautiful it's uh, it always guarantees success it guarantees something satisfying yeah and like i adopted that when i eventually after a few campaigns because i as a player was so frustrated with how 5e's critical hits (laughs) 
I find them very lackluster. They are pretty lackluster. Um, yeah. Um, but similarly, if I'm playing a game where I want the heroes to feel like especially competent and stuff, uh, I'll do, you know, monsters who aren't a boss monster. You know, they auto hit on a crit, but they don't get anything okay. extra. They just get the hit in. Um, you know, but, you know, not all games, that, that's not appropriate. In all right. games. If you're playing a game where everything is supposed to be dangerous all the time, then yeah, monsters <laughs> can crit. But, like, it's it's kind of a thing where, like, depending on the tone you're going for, and, and also depending on your personal style, it's good to talk to these things with your players before going yeah, in. Setting the expectations is a whole new conversation that uh, we can talk many, many hours about. Uh, figuring out the expectations uh, with everyone else and understanding that everyone understands what you mean when you say what it is that you're saying. Um, exactly. Uh, All right. We are coming up to an hour here. Uh, Mateus, is there anything else you'd like to touch on while we've got uh, here? The, the last thing that I thought about is how I actually handle like a perception check. I always, if there's something to perceive, the people will notice. That is simply a question of uh, they notice the thing that is about to happen. They notice the secret door. Do they notice the secret lever? Do they notice the trap? That's where the perception check might come in. Uh, do they see the orcs? Absolutely. Do they see the numbers? Do they see the spellcasters? Do they see the ones that are sneaking about? That's a good question. Perception check. I want them, if I have, um, I run narrative focused games. I want the story to move forward. And I'm more interested in finding out what do the players do when they have the information? Like, how do they succeed? The players know it's coming. Great. They have that information. But how much of that information do they have and how soon do they have it? That's the critical, uh, that's going to be the critical part. That, I really like that. And it also, it feels like you've brought some of fate into D&D. Because oh, yeah. that's, <laughs> the thing that I, I read that like made fate click in my mind was that in D&D, the players, when they go into a dungeon, they don't know how many rooms there are. They don't know how many monsters there are. They, they don't know anything until they start exploring. Whereas in Fate, you would really have a whole bunch of rooms. You maybe have like three zones and the players are going to know a lot about what's going on. Mm -hmm. They know that this zone, they've got to get past some guards. They know in this zone, there's a whole bunch of traps. They know in this zone, there's a big, bad, evil monster waiting for them. And yeah, the idea that like, you tell the players like, okay, they need to make a perception check because they know that the orcs are coming, but do they see the one sneaking around the side? I really like that idea because it it makes it very simple to have hidden stuff that the perceptive players get to feel good for seeing mm -hmm. and warning people like, look out for those archers over there rather than just, oh, I noticed the orcs coming before they burst out of the trees and attacked us. Like, it puts a different spin on it that, to mm -hmm. me, like, I feel that going over a lot better. Because if somebody fails a perception check to see the archers, then it's just like, oh, wow, they were really sneaky and not like, how did this horde of 20 orcs sneak up on us? And that that could be a cool question to answer. Like, how did they sneak up on you? But that, <laughs> that leads to, it's like, okay, how did we miss this? And then there could be an answer for that. I would... I would typically improv something along those lines. That's where fate is really good at, great at for power of the apocalypse. You just add a reason why they were unable, you're unable to see them. Oh, cool. They have a spellcaster that casts a fog spell on top of them. And that's why you didn't see them. Cool. There's now a spellcaster in the group. Oops. That's what, <laughs> that's what happened when you fail perception check. You just made the encounter harder. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Is there anything that you'd like to plug before we get out of here? I have no online presence. I am happy as it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. Um, okay, cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Yeah, it was. Thank you for having me. This is a, I've been thinking about this a lot. <laughs> and uh, cool. Yeah, you don't have anything to plug, so I guess we'll just get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you guys and looking forward to more episodes. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the show. We are proud members of the Cave Goblin Podcast Network. Find us and other shows at cavegoblins.com. You can support us and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins or by joining our Discord. 
You can also support us by leaving review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, or myself at Jesse Barros and Sean at Sean P. Hagen. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. Our art is done by the fantastic Haley Barros. See more of her work at HaleyBarros.com. That's all for this episode. Hope to see you out there at the gaming table. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.